You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. It's my great delight today. My name, by the way, is Gillian McIntyre, and I work in the education department at the AGO. And it's my great delight today to welcome Annie cohen Solal for the next in our wonderful series with the Canadian Art Foundation. And I was trying to remember how many we've done of these talks, but it's been a wonderful partnership with Canadian Art. We've brought all sorts of amazing speakers, and it's been a very happy and healthy relationship, and may it long go on. Um, so we are going to have a talk from Annie, and then afterwards there will be, on Leo Castelli, there will be a book signing upstairs in the store. So I would like to invite Anne Webb, who's the Executive Director of the Canadian Art Foundation, to introduce Annie cohen Sola. Thank you, Gillian, and welcome, everyone. It's nice to be here with all the non-skiers. <laughs> I'm, I'm a non-skier. Um, the Canadian Art Foundation International Speaker Series is one of the many programs and events of the Canadian Art Foundation, and we are always delighted to collaborate with our colleagues here at the AGO to present the series in Toronto, as Gillian said. I would like to acknowledge the generous support of BMO Financial Group, the sponsor of the series, and in particular, Nat Aristich, who's here today. We have worked closely with the Consulate General of France in Toronto to present Ms. Cohen Solal's talk today, and thank you to everyone at the Consulate for their collaboration. Je voudrais remercier le Consulat Général de France à Toronto pour leur appui, et je voudrais reconnaître aussi Claire Lemon, David Grasso, et le Consul Général Jérôme Cochard, qui sont ici aujourd'hui avec nous. Merci. <laughs> I go to the Alliance Francaise. <laughs> um, Annie cohen Solal is an academic, historian, and writer. Her highly praised biography of Jean-Paul Sartre, Sartre a Life, has been translated into 16 languages. The French edition of her book, Painting American, The Rise of the American Artists, Paris, 1867, New York to 1948, was awarded the Prix, the, the Prix Bernier by the Acad Académie des Beaux-Arts. From 1989 to 1993, Cohen Solal served as cultural counselor at the French Embassy in the United States. She has taught at numerous universities, including New York University, the University of Berlin, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and the Université de Paris. Currently, she is visiting arts professor at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. The timing of Cohen Solal's talk could not be more appropriate. 54 years ago, on February 3rd, 1957, Leo Castelli cleared out his East 77th Street apartment in New York, including his daughter's bedroom, and opened his first New York gallery space. This was to be the first of five spaces in New York. In her book, Cohen Solal not only presents a fascinating biography of America's most influential art dealer, but also an important historical document chronicling the game-changing impact that Castelli, along with Ileana Sonnebend and his circle, had on the evolution of post-war American art within the international art world. If you have not already read Cohen Solal's book, I urge you to do so. Please welcome Annie Cohen Solal.
And you have read the book properly, and you taught me yesterday that it was the anniversary of Leo's gallery. So thank you so much for reminding us that there's something to celebrate today. I'm going to take off my coat. It's very warm here. Thank you. Um, so thank you to everybody from um, the three institutions which invited me, the AGO, the Canadian Art Foundation, and the French Embassy. Uh, first of all, uh, I was introduced to um, this museum by uh, David Mousse last uh, October in Paris when I gave a five minutes talk to a group of trustees and I noticed how fantastic they were. So I am delighted to be back with you. had the feeling that it was uh, a group that I had already known. So it's very nice to be uh, back with you. Uh, and uh, it's also strange to be talking on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, there's sun outside, there's snow, about an art dealer who passed away 10 years ago at a time where everybody is um, obsessed by what we see on television about Egypt. And I just want to say two words about that because I think that what, what's happening in Egypt brings me back to the art world. Uh, I am interested in the art world, not as an art historian who is describing the paintings. So I will not show you any painting today except one. So you have to know if, you, if you're not happy with it, you have to know in advance. I am not an art historian dealing with the text and describing paintings. I am a cultural historian uh, dealing with the context I think art is highly political. I think everything is political. And I think that what I am interested in in the art world has to do with the social and political context of the art world. And I am going to try to show that to you. Uh, in a way, Leo Castelli um, epitomizes that. And his whole trajectory epitomizes that. Um, when we look at what's happening in Egypt today, we think of issues of democracy, issues of social classes, issues of uh, political elements. We saw some uh, museums looted. So, um, and um, that the, my, my, my real approach to the art world is that of, as I told you, cultural historian, but also, also as of a sociologist. I will not talk only about the artist, but I will talk about the other agents around the artist, basically the gallerist, the critics, the collectors, the trustees, which is you, the public, and so on and so forth. So let me start um, um, in, um, in approaching this, um, this topic, which is Leo Castelli as the first global gallerist. Uh, first of all, um, I was, um, as Anne told you, when I arrived in the United States in 1989 to be the, become the French cultural counselor, I knew very little about American art. I was a scholar. I worked on you know, French intellectuals and the Communist Party. And two weeks after I had come to the city, somebody did the dinner for me nicely to introduce me to some people in town. And at this dinner was Leo Castelli. He told me that he was delighted to meet with me and he wanted to introduce me to American art. Could I come the next day to a party for a show with Roy and a dinner with Roy? 
said yes. And then um, he also said that he would teach me American art. What, I, what, what this book is about is that um, I dropped everything about French intellectuals and communism to deal with the art world because of Leo Castelli. I kept the same toolbox, historical and sociological, but I changed my object. And I, I promise you, it's much more fun. So thank you, Leo. <laughs> now, why, why this photo on the cover? Um, this photo epitomizes what I try to do. Here you see Leo Castelli, who is a very, very elegant man, very sociable, uh, spoke a lot, spoke too much. Sometimes I was exasperated the way he spoke about anecdotes about himself in English, in French, in Italian, in, in, you know, in, in, in Romanian, you name it, German. You know? And some, these stories about himself were creating uh, um, a myth. He had created a history about himself, which was sometimes, uh, you know, it was very elusive. Uh, for example, when asked, he would not deny he was Jewish, but he would never mention he was Jewish. He would never volunteer to mention he was Jewish. And we, we'll get back to that. So there were many elements in his life which seemed like, like mysteries. And because I like to address, confront taboos and myths, I decided when I started my book that I would like to understand what was behind this myth. So this is a photo of Leo, very elegant, by Robert Mapplethorpe that was organized part of a big show in the city where he was born in Trieste, a show of his portraits. This is um, this portrait, and the galleries had put it on a veil, on a big, big uh, curtain, as big as the screen, um, during the show, and it was cut in two, and Leo, for the opening, came and appeared. So here he's coming uh, from, the, from the curtain. And this is a very good um, um, you know, uh, symbol of what I was trying to do. Who is the real small Leo, the real Leo, the black Leo, behind the veil, which is on the curtain and which he tried to create. Thanks, thank you so much. You know, who is the real Castelli? So that's what I try to do in my book. So this is why the cover is representing him behind you know, coming out of himself. So the question has, when I started my book, most of my French friends were completely upset with me. They said, how come you are starting to do a research on this guy who was only a dealer? What do you have to say about a dealer? You have worked on Jean-Paul Sartre, the most you know, bulimic writer of the 20th century, on, on Claude Lévi-Strauss, you know, the great anthropologist who passed away at the age of 101, you know, Paul Nizan, who, where I did my PhD on. What, do you have, what does he have in common with these three great minds, you know? And it was embarrassing for me at first. You know, I, I didn't know what to say. Uh, how could I, you know, f how could they forgive me? you know, for spending so much time on this poor guy who was just a dealer, you know. But I was convinced that he was worth four years of my life. I had the intuition that what he had done for America, for the world, for the art world, was at least as important as what Sartre or Levi Strauss of Nino had done themselves as writers and intellectuals. Um, the first gallery that Leo Castelli opened was in Paris at a very odd date. I don't know if you can read it. Wednesday, the 5th of July, 1939. But it was at a good location on Place Vendôme. Uh, it had been bought for him by his father-in-law for the equivalent of $2 million. 
and it was between the Ritz Hotel and Schiaparelli. You cannot get better. <laughs> but the timing was not exactly the best. Here is one of the photos of uh, this show. Here you see Max Ernst uh, in French. It, I never remember the name in English. L'Ange du Foyer by Max Ernst. And in front of that, uh, this beautiful model, uh, bare arm, you know, under this terrible monster which represents what is going to happen to Europe uh, very soon afterwards. Um, well, 1941, Leo Castelli, after a long series of displacements, we'll get back to that, arrives in New York City. The first thing he does, he has a job in his uh, father-in-law's factory. He is supposed to sell and produce Jersey sweaters in New Jersey. And he is, <laughs> he is actually in the schmatter's business, if you see what I mean. But he hates it. That's how he makes his living. At 9 o'clock, he's uh, going in this factory. But at 10, he's going to MoMA. What does he see at MoMA? He sees the permanent collection that Alfred Barr has gathered. So we will see now the uh, second part of Leo Castelli's life. He arrives in New York. He's 37 years old. And for 17 years, he is not working. He's positioning himself. Uh, how does he position himself? First thing, he becomes, he starts to learn. He learns European art from MoMA and from this man here, Alfred Barr, that we see between Marcel Duchamp and Sidney Janis. Alfred Barr had created MoMA in 1929. He was the youngest um, possible um, director. He was 27 years old. He had himself discovered modernism in Europe in the mid-20s. He had gone to Amsterdam, to Berlin, to Moscow, to Paris, and he brought back what he discovered from modernism in Europe. He was mesmerized by the Stiel movement in Amsterdam. He was mesmerized by the Bauhaus, by the Russian futurist, and by the French surrealist, and by the German expressionists. He had built within the decade of the 30s in the United States, the best possible collection of modernist European art. When he saw those artists, those movements in New York in the 20s and the 30s, he discovered them as beautiful flowers that had been brought up by European artists. And he decided to pick them up and to bring them in another territory, the United States, where he had the money of the Rockefellers. For me, what Alfred Barr did at the modern was is a, a salvation of Europe. Leo Castelli, when he arrives in New York in 1941, said something very interesting. Actually, he told me. He said, the collection that Alfred Barr had gathered was an encyclopedia of European art that no European country could do at the time, because Europe was at war. He had integrated the Russians, the French, the Germans, um, and he, and that's one of the things which Castelli adored, looking at this collection. He learned from this collection because this integration of Europe could not happen in Europe. He came from a broken Europe. We'll get back to that later. So Castelli is in New York, married with Ileana, and they have, they are collectors, they are rich, uh, they meet with people, they buy. 
uh, and they live a good life. Uh, he's occasionally, occasionally curating shows. Here he curates a show for this man, Sidney Janis, and he curates a show of French and American artists in 1951. But what uh, Castelli says about the United States is extremely interesting at the time. He says everyone at the time in New York was totally desperate. Artists were alone, they, they felt isolated, they had no audience, nothing. It was hard for them to survive, uh, and yet they kept at it feeling like they were nothing, um, that they were working only for themselves. So Leo and Ileana and his wife take part in a club which is putting together artists and scholars like Anna Arendt and Clement Greenberg and um, uh, William de Kooning and um, Jackson Pollock. They meet three times a week. And Castelli for them, this poor artist from the East Village, is hanging a show, the Ninth Street Show, which takes place in an empty ruin of you know an, uh, an old an old factory on Ninth Street and it's Castelli who is hanging the show and you see here all the names of the artist at the opening you see the show there's so little space that one Pollock is hung upside down and when and when uh, Castelli does the show for the first time somebody comes a whole crowd comes from Upper East Side from New York crossing 14th Street coming to the East Village. And in this crowd is Alfred Barr, the director of MoMA. He comes to Leo Castelli, whom he did not know before, and he tells him, can you please tell me who these guys are? They live in New York, they are New York artists, I have never met them. So whereas before, when Leo Castelli arrived from New York, it was Alfred Barr who taught him what European art was like when it was integrated, now it is Leo Castelli who teaches Alfred Barr, the American, who these American artists living in New York are. This is the beginning of a long relationship which will take place between Leo Castelli and Alfred Barr. We'll get back to it. Um, you know, the first Castelli arrives meeting with Barnett Newman and here the young Bob Rauschenberg. Uh, and his friends at the time that he's even paint at his place in East Hampton are de Kooning and Ellen de Kooning and his wife. And here is Jackson Pollock. Castelli was mesmerized by them. He said they were extremely good. He said they were my heroes. I came from New York, he said. Uh, I, I came from Europe, he said, where I, I was in awe with writers and artists. And, but they were not making a living. So one day, uh, de, Kooning, uh, de Kooning asks Leo. He says, Leo, one day you'll open a gallery and you, you will show me. But Leo's wife says to the Kooning, Bill, Leo will certainly open a gallery, but he will not show you because what he wants to do is to discover new artists. Well, uh, a, few, uh, a, few, a few weeks later, this is, this is the only painting you're going to see today. So uh, this is the first of Leo Castelli's epiphanies. It takes place in 1957 at the Jewish Museum. Leo Castelli discovers this incredible piece, which is made of a material that he has never seen before. It's a mi mixture of wax and uh, color, pigment. Uh, it has a shape which has never seen. It's a theme, a uh, 
that he has never seen, and the name of the artist is very exotic and also poetic for him. He comes back and tells his wife, I have seen something unbelievable. It's a green target. I don't even recall the name of the artist. A few days later, they go to visit the studio of Rauschenberg, and Rauschenberg tells them that their next, his next-door neighbor is Jasper Johns. He picks up ice from the fridge from Jasper Johns. Castellis goes with him. He sees a whole body of work finished with targets, with, with maps, with letters, with numbers, and he tells Jasper Johns, may I show you, may I give you a show. That will be the first Castellis show with an enormous impact. Uh, and through this show, Castelli gets the cover of Art News, and he gets um, Alfred Barr to buy four paintings for the Museum of Modern Art. So here is the way that Jasper Jones, at the age of 27, is launched by Leo Castelli in February 1958. So as Castelli, as a gallerist, who opens, as Anne told you, a gallery in his daughter's bedroom at the age of 50, Leo Castelli will launch Jasper Johns, who had absolutely no echo at the time. And, but also, I can say that Jasper Johns launches Castelli as a gallerist. Within uh, 40 years, here is, here is the list of the other epiphanies that um, artists and epiphanies that uh, Castelli will discover. Jasper Johns, Bob Rauschenberg, Frank Stella, Cy Twombly, Lee Montague, Roy Lichtenstein, John Chamberlain, Andy Warhol, Jim Rosenquist, Donald Judd, Christo, Bob Morris, Joseph Kossuth, Dan Flavin, Keith Saunier, Richard Serra, Richard Archwager, Ed Rocher, Klaus Oldenburg, Lawrence Weiner, Ellsworth Kelly, Kenneth Nolan, James Tarrell, Julian Schnabel, David Sally, and so on. These are just a few of them. So this is to show you the the, the speed with which um, Castelli is starting his gallery. Um, he, uh, ident he starts by identifying artists and by orchestrating an accelerated succession of artistic movements. Then Castelli is basically he's reinventing the, the, wor the work of the art gallerist. Then he will be mobilizing all networks, cultural as well as mediatic and social, to support his artist. First of all, he does something extremely interesting, something which exists in Europe but does, did not exist in the United States, is that the, ones, the first ones to support the artists are the scholars and the writers. In France, we had the, the Café Gerbois during the, 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 the Impressionist movement, uh, Baudelaire supported Delacroix and Zola supported Cézanne. In the United States, it was not the case. But what Castelli does, he goes to famous scholars and asks them to write on his own artist. So here is Leo Steinberg, who's still alive today, 93 years old, a great Renaissance scholar who, whose father was actually the minister of of justice, of Lenin. And, um, he, and by having a Renaissance scholar writing on Jasper Johns, it's the best possible way of legitimizing an emerging artist. Here is Bob Rosenblum, professor at uh, the IFA in, in, at NYU. Here is um, 
Franco Hara uh, with Larry Rivers, poet and curator writing on all those artists. And here is a piece that Castelli commissioned from somebody I knew pretty well, which was Jean-Paul Sartre. He commissioned from Sartre and his ma magazine a piece on Andy Warhol's dark period in Paris to show that Andy Warhol was really doing a social critic of capitalist America in the mid-60s. Um, apart from um, commissioning pieces um, from prestigious scholars, Castelli is documenting and archi archiving the works of his artists, producing catalogs, and creating his gallery as an institution, a cultural institution. He creates functional links between his gallery and Alfred Barr and MoMA. Alan Salomon, a, scholar, a professor of art history from Cornell, who becomes the director of the Jewish Museum in the 60s and the Jewish Museum. Henry Gelsaller and uh, the Metropolitan. Um, Tom, um, I always forget his name. What's his name? Tom Armstrong and the, and the Whitney, as well as the next director of MoMA, Kirk Varnedo and back to MoMA, who, uh, who was his great friend. So creating functional links between, between um, the gallery, the market, and the museum. All that in a constant whirlwind of invention, combining the fascination in front of the new with a historicist interpretation of the emerging artists. Um, his taste for epiphany, uh, made an, um, everybody believe that there was an aesthetic urge for a constant change. So he really accelerated the pace. Uh, what he then did is put American art on, uh, uh, in, um, uh, in, in, the international, um, in the international map. Um, he um, launched um, Bob Rauschenberg, at, um, at the Venice Biennial, but before that, he tried to get to the highest possible people. Here he is on the 14th of June, 1963, uh, at a day called Flag Day, giving a present to President Kennedy, which is a Jasper Johns flag. It's Flag Day, he gives him a flag. Actually, the story is very funny. I think like he looks like a, a representant commerce, Leo, here, you know? And Jasper Johns said, you know, why do you give him this flag? And Leo said, because I wanted the president and the first lady to come to my gallery for, his, for my openings. This is the way to go. So here is, um, but the most important, uh, putting American art on the map is the Venice Biennial 1964, when he absolutely mobilizes all his forces to make possible that Rauschenberg gets a prize. It's complicated, the, all the works arrive by military plane, they are transported by foot, they are transported by gondola, they, and here in the end, Rauschenberg gets a prize, but it's good because the friend of Castelli, Alan Salomon, is a commissioner of this biennial. Here is Castelli's first wife, Ileana, he's then divorced from her, so she's watching on Rauschenberg, Rauschenberg gets the prize, and here, Ileana Zonabund. So you see Castelli's network is not only his friends, but his ex-wife, you know, and everybody's part of it. So the network is extremely interesting. 
Ileana Zonaben, who has in the meantime opened a gallery in Paris, is launching a, mar a market, um, uh, an ad advertising market for, um, a marketing, sorry, advertisement for Rauschenberg all over Europe through these magazines. Even she buys this ma, as you say in French, you know, in, in these poles, like in Paris, you have poles only for museum, but she bought poles to, to, to advertise for um, the pop artists. And he is Castelli. I forgot one of his person of his team is his first wife, second husband, Michael Zonabans. So, you know, everybody is mobilized. Everybody works hard together, and this is a big success. So good, 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 uh, good ideas for you. You know, everybody should do that. <laughs> so, basically, um, in this respect, Castelli is exploiting new contexts. Um, it's uh, the institutions, the museums start being interested in the avant-garde, and there are new emerging international events, art events. You know, it's not as it is today, the biennials and the, you know, every, every other week there's a biennial somewhere. At the time, there was Venice and Venice and Venice. There was Documenta, there was Basel a little bit, but, you know, this was the very, very beginning. So he exploited these new art events and these um, globalized exchanges as much as he could to launch his artists. Um, well, when people thought that he was, you know, really working like a, like a ferocious uh, merchant in Venice, uh, his little notebook, tiny, tiny notebook by Hermes, shows how he organized his strategies. And I love to look at that, you know, he's writing all these little details. But at the back, the last page of his notebook shows that at the end of this Venice Biennial, he is putting a list of books he has to read during the summer. And these books are Goethe, Proust, you know. And he's basically back into his readings because that's what he likes the most. Um, after launching, um, you know, American artists on the international ma market, he creates um, he, he creates a real market for the art, American art. Uh, at Sotheby's Park Burnett, American paintings never sold. Uh, for three times, they were, you know, there were attempts. They never sold until this Robert Skull sold his collection. And the Skull sale in 1974 starts getting the prices of American art a little higher. And since then, it's been zooming until today when, you know, this uh, Andy Warhol sold for $52 million, um, this Coke bottle recently. So Castelli is also responsible for that. Castelli also created um, an international network of friendly galleries and satellite galleries. Here you can see his galleries in New York. He had nine galleries. Each of them was answering a new need of his artists. When his artists were creating bigger scale things, he opened a warehouse in Harlem. And he's going to launch Soho as the first mecca of international art from the United States. We'll get back to Soho later on. Um, you know, the different galleries. Here is his daughter's bedroom uh, in 58 with the Jasper Johns show. You see the very small room. Here is Harlem with a piece by... Um, Kissonnier, and Kissonnier told me how Leo reacted. Um, Kiss was showing him the first video, the first installation video. So Leo, uh, who was at the time 72 years old, he said, 
keys, this is beautiful, but what do I sell? Do I sell the camera? Do I sell the tape? Do I sell the TV set? What do I sell? But he was all for it, but he was a little, I mean, worried, you know, what was going on. Here he's uh, another gallery when they try, try to find a new market for other products, cheaper and a new audience, Castelli Graphics, selling graphics, prints and photographies with his second wife. This is the famous gallery 420 West Broadway with his first wife. And at the time he was shuttling between uptown, wife number two, downtown, wife number one, making each of them jealous of the other one and being more avant-garde with the second one, uh, the first one, than with the second one, but everything went okay in the end. This is another Gary Green Street that he had with Larry Gagosian welcoming uh, Jim Rosenquist. And this is one of his partners, Larry Gagosian, with whom he had a gallery. And we know what uh, Larry Gagosian became today. And we can talk about his gallery if you want later on. Uh, not only had he galleries all over the, the, the New York, but all over the United States, including Toronto, uh, where, uh, you know, David Mervish um, was I mean, not exactly a satellite gallery, but a friend of Leo. And all over the United States, um, some collectors actually decided to promote Castelli's artists just because they wanted to become like Castelli, because he had cachet and charism. Um, the other network of galleries in Europe, with the first one in Paris, with his first wife, and all those galleries created enormous collections. Uh, and actually, it was the first um, goal of Castelli to have his artists represented in European museums. <clears throat> the two biggest collections of pop art are in Germany, the Peter Ludwig collection, which became a museum, and the second one, the Panza collection in Italy, uh, which became a museum in Varese. As you can see, uh, Castelli and his wife Ileana managed to create the two most important collection of American art in the two countries which expelled the Jews the most severely. We'll get back to that later. Uh, among the people that Castelli had uh, in his friends is here a guy, I don't know if you recognize him, Jeffrey Deitch, who became, you know, curator, director of the MOCA LA with uh, Eli Broad recently. So this is part of Leo and his circle. And um, we're going to stop a little bit on one of the moments um, of um, uh, the book, which I call uh, the Castelli Network as a house, the House of Savoy. Uh, it's basically the way that uh, Castelli will um, um, promote his strategies for his artists. And uh, we can see how he, um, he proceeds as the epitome of the Austro-Hungarian strategist. I quote, the Dukes of Savoy seldom lost a battle, but more, more importantly, they never lost the war. Leo would always make sure that he was near the battlefield, almost always managing to survive the situation. Leo always kept in control. He rarely tried to kill his enemies, rather he co-opted them. So um, he was like a diplomat, an Austro-Hungarian diplomat. Here is, you know, you see him the way he was impeccably dressed always, in between Giannenzo Sperone, a satellite gallery in Torino and Milano, and Joseph Kossuth. And, you know, the two young guys in, you know, hippies and 
beard and so on, and Leo impeccably dressed in his, you know, always in his Hermes suit. Uh, Enzo Speroni said we, said we were faithful allies fighting as, at his side. And uh, Tony Shafrazi, together with Keith Haring, said we were his apostles. Giannenzo Speroni adds, Leo oversaw the new legend that was American art. But curiously, he approached it not with the business genius of a Volard or a Duvin, but with something else, something completely new, the firm conviction of serving a higher cause. There was, as Castelli had intuited, a new political economy of cultural objects, and like all value systems, it depended upon, upon upholding a consensus. I quote Leo Castelli, why should anyone want to buy a Cezanne for $800,000? What is a little Cezanne? A house in the middle of a landscape? Why should it have value? Because it is a myth. It is a myth. We make myth about politics. We make myth about everything. My responsibility is the myth-making of myth-making material, which handled properly and imaginatively is the job of a dealer. And I have to go at it completely. So what Castelli did was create, creating value for his artists and selling it, but how would he do it? He, he, here you see him with his um, director, Ivan Karp, and behind is Jasper Johns. Here with uh, Salvador Dali, whom he had showed in Paris in 1939. Here negotiating at the table with collectors, making a deal. Here uh, the, you know, the strategy you know, in, in, in Soho. And here with his collectors. Uh, one of the elements that, one of the strategies that Castelli used here is Eli Broad, um, with whom I'm actually I'm having a panel on the 14th of, uh, exactly a week from now, on the 14th of February in LA. And here is Giuseppe Panza di Bumo, the biggest collector of pop art in, uh, in Italy. He passed away a year ago. But um, what was Castelli's strategy after making creating value for his artists' products, he started to create scarcity. How did he create scarcity? He invented the waiting list. Here is a story of Panza di Biomo. Leo is talking. I went to see Panza's place. First of all, Panza, you know, writes to Leo and says, I have seen paintings by Hauschenberg. I think they're very nice. Can I buy one? And Castelli doesn't answer the letter. Second letter, no answer. Third letter, Panza goes to New York. Uh, he invites Castelli to his country house. Castelli goes to the country house, which happens to be a grand mansion in Varese. And here's what Castelli says. I went to see Panza's place. It's near Milan, Varese, on the lake, an old 17th century palace right in the middle of the park. It reminds you of L'année dernière à Marienbad. There was a living room full of Rothko's, just Rothko's, and the dining room just Klein's. Really quite amazing. 
18 major clients and as many Rothkos. I mean, there, there is this castle with fantastic antique furniture in every room. You go up a solemn, very imposing staircase with all the ancestral portraits, and then there are all these immense number of rooms and corridors and such. So that's the visit to Panza's country house. Well, Castelli, who had always refused to sell to Panza, changes his mind, as you can imagine, and Panza explains, explained to me. During that visit, we became very good friends. It was a test, and I passed the test. Leo decided that, that, that I had the stuff to become a great collector, and that he would help me just to do that. So basically, Castelli was not selling paintings to put on the walls. He was educating collectors, and he was selecting the collectors. He would remain always the master of ceremonies. And um, Eli Bro told me another thing which I found extremely interesting. He said, Leo educated me. I would come to Soho once a month just to have lunch with him because I felt that that is where history was taking place. So Castelli is using all the new fortunes made in New York at the time in the United States and creating collections. Um, Donald Maron, uh, trustee of MoMA, is describing um, you know, how, for him, um, Castelli's gallery became a destination gallery. Sorry. Um, and the great moment starts when Leo opens Soho. Here we have a few slides about um, the way he works on the telephone. And we have especially the moment, the, the, a very interesting element of his gallery, which is the famous velvet rope, which has to do with access and scarcity and accessibility and power, of course. You see the velvet rope here. So when you got into the gallery, there was a big space. You had somebody you know, welcoming you. You could see the art. And behind the velvet rope, you could see far away in a little niche, Leo Castelli, unavailable. <laughs> so here is what Jeffrey Deitch says about the velvet rope. There were several stages to approach Castelli. And I cannot help thinking in terms of his inner circle. There were several stages, and you really had to earn your place. In the first stage, you went up to the velvet rope, but nobody opened it for you. You were not allowed in. In the second stage, one of the Brundage sisters would see you, open the velvet rope, and invite you in. In the final stage, you had the access. You could just lift the velvet rope yourself and walk in. Eventually, I became a member of the inner circle, and I was able to ask him how he defined his aesthetic vision. He answered, my aesthetic vision is a fusion of Marcel Duchamp and Piet Mondrian, and so on and so forth. Okay? So here is this one, some of the strategies of these incredible Austro-Hungarian strategists in order to um, create um, value for his artist. His gallery was run very democratically. Even I was doing um, presentation uh, for the Friends of the Israel Museum uh, one day, and there was a rabbi sitting in the back. He said, 
Do you want to say that Castelli ran his gallery like a shul? Means like a synagogue. And I'll explain to you later why it is half true. I mean, actually, completely true. We'll talk about it. So here is the, is the staff, you know. People would say that he was the best boss they ever had. He was a terrible husband, a terrible father, a terrible grandfather, by all accounts, but a fantastic boss. And this one, Bob Monk, who works for Gagosian today, said about the waiting list. The waiting list, it didn't exist, but of course it existed, you know. So everybody said, no, 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 but everybody knew, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Here is Leo among his artists that, you know, everybody said, you know, he was like a father figure to us. Uh, he made people understand that we were not bums anymore. You know, this is what uh, Jim Rosenquist told me. So being part of the Castelli stable was a great promotion. I mean, the only way to access, um, you know, the status of a great artist in America. Um, in fact, what was the, the meaning of um, Castelli's gallery. How can we define it? Uh, in fact, this is a little story that will um, describe how it worked. First of all, um, as I said earlier, Leo was not selling art, but he was on a um, cultural mission. Let's listen to what he says. I had immense faith in what I was doing. I was just very impatient. I could not understand how people were not bowled over by all this, all these things that were happening around American art. There was a mission to be accomplished, to find the best artists, to go on helping in supporting these great trends. It may even be playing an important role in that where like patrons used to do in the time of the Renaissance, and then later during the age of Louis XIV, where art was so seriously considered and then in the 19th century. There was a, that sense of history that I always felt in connection with what I was doing, and all those things have changed so much, I still feel that there is some kind of mission that I have. So he felt invested, I mean, that he had this mission. Uh, here is um, a lot of people uh, in France, for example, say that Castelli was only interested in money, speculation, Nothing is more wrong. Here is young Bob Rauschenberg in 1955, surrounded by his combines. Here is one of them, bed, that Castelli purchased, purchased when he showed it in 58 because nobody wanted to buy it, and even nobody wanted to show it. So he bought bed, and in 1989, what did Leo do? He decided to donate bed, this combine, to MoMA. It was a time where bed was evaluated at $11 million. He had bought it for 1100 He could have sold it. He did not. And when he gave it to, to MoMA, it was a time where the tax exemption law was very bad because of Ronald Reagan. So he didn't get any tax exemption on that. So why did he give bed to MoMA? Why did he do that? Here's a party with Agnes Gunt. And why did he give this piece of art? He did it, first of all, because he said he wanted to change the narrative of American art in the galleries of MoMA, because MoMA purchased as, as early as Alfred Barr had bought Jasper Johns in 58. Uh, Rauschenberg never entered MoMA before, didn't enter MoMA before 74, which is much, much, much later. 
And Castelli thought that Moman needed to have a combined because he wanted to change historically the narrative of American art. You see here bed in the, but he also did it. And that tells you the story because of Alfred Barr. He donated bed to MoMA in honor of Alfred Barr Jr. Why did he do that? Do you remember earlier he had learned European art by visiting the permanent collection of MoMA in 1941? Alfred Barr was his mentor. Leo Castelli learned from MoMA as Americans learn from a college. MoMA was his alma mater. The gesture of donating bed to MoMA, of donating a piece of furniture, actually a very private piece of furniture, a bed where you were born, where you make love, where you die. That was his bed. He donated it to MoMA as an American gives a donation to his alma mater. That was the gesture of Leo Castelli as an American donating bed to his alma mater, him, the European, whose life had been um, all about persecutions and displacements in Europe. Uh, and here, uh, this is uh, basically the, the story of Castelli. Uh, his mother came from Tuscany, arrived in Trieste. His father came from Hungary, arrived in Trieste. He lived in Trieste, Vienna, Trieste, Milano, Trieste, Bucharest, Paris, Budapest, and the United States. Castelli's life is the story of the Jews of Europe, and Castelli's life was made, made of bits and pieces when he arrived in New York in 1941, but Barr gave him, with this integrated map of European art, an integrated Europe that he believed in and uh, basically helped him become an American. So therefore, his bed, the Rauschenberg combines, was for MoMA. Um, this could be the story of Leo Castelli, starting when he arrives in New York. And that's something that a lot of Americans, a few Americans, think they were expecting in my book. But my book has the half the half of the beginning of the book is completely another story. It's a story of Castelli before he comes to the United States, Castelli be before he opens a gallery in Paris, and Castelli's ancestors in Europe. Why? Because I do believe in a, um, a type of history called Histoire de la Longue Durée, initiated by Fernand Braudel, who describes it between the ti different times of history. The history of the long term presents itself as a cumbersome, complicated and mostly unheard of character. It is according to those layers of slow history that the whole of history can be considered once again as if from an infrastructural level, all the layers, all the thousands of layers, all the thousands of splinters, all the chips of the time of history are to be understood from these depths, from this half immobility around which everything else gravitates. So it's because I believe in this type of history that I devoted the first half of the book to Castelli before Castelli. In fact, what did Castelli do in uh, New York? He created a narrative for American artists that nobody had done before. He put them in uh, art history as Vasari had done with Vite dei Artisti in 1550 when Vasari said that Bronzino was a student of Puntormo and himself taught Allori, 
Leo Castelli said there was an artist that I never showed, but which, who was the mentor of all my artists, Marcel Duchamp. He linked them. They were floating, they were, they were isolated. He linked them to art history. Jasper, Leo said, was like Ingres. Bob was like Delacroix. I cannot help showing you again. Jasper was like Ingres. Don't you, look, they look, don't you think they look like each other? And Jasper's, you know, Jasper's work, very clean, very smooth, very beautiful, very, uh, with a beautiful, beautiful feeling, um, very delicate. And Rauschenberg and Delacroix, Rauschenberg picking garbage from the street, putting it on the, you know, and Delacroix, who's all movement and color and so on. So this is the story of Leo Castelli, whose life is um, an epitome, I mean, of the secularization of Jews displaced in Europe. In fact, Castelli had once, as I told you, his life was all mysteries. He would give these anecdotes and never say anything serious. He would give these, you know, these mechanic stories, which exasperated me, really. So, but one day he had given me a lead. He had told me, I have a house in Italy. So he came to this house and he said, I think you should go one day and, and look at uh, Monte San Savino. It's near Arezzo. And I used to go with him to Arezzo to see uh, Piero della Francesca. And he said, go to Monte San Savino and tell me if you find graves in the cemetery with the name Castelli on them. So when I started the biography, I, I, I went to Monte San Savino and this is a village I found. We see the the whole of the merchants where the Jews chased out of Spain were selling money. And uh, in front of the palace of um, the aristocratic family whose son became a pope, this little city was dying from aristocrats and priests. But the Jews arrived there because the pope gave them a break on the taxes. So the Jews decided to use it. And they were doing import-export. So they came and turned this village into a very vibrant community. And two streets below is the street of the ghetto. They lived there for three centuries. And the Castelli brothers were here. I found the family with Aaron Castelli. His son is Jacobi. What were they doing? They were selling aquavit, alcohol. alcohol. Uh, they were selling... Um, um, I forgot what, uh, tobacco, tobacco, and all the bad things. You know, you could smoke, you could drink alcohol, and they were selling paper to the artists. So basically, Castelli, when he told me to go to Monte San Savino, led me to discover something he never knew, that his, art, his ancestors might very well have, might have sold paper to Piero della Francesca and Vasari, who lived in the village. Here is um, the notificazione when the Jews are expelled in 1799, because after three centuries they're expelled by a pogrom called group of people called Viva Maria. They will be expelled and they will disappear for, forever until the day when the mayor of the city in 2005 uh, des decides to clean the Jewish cemetery and have the rabbi of Florence do a kaddish on the graves. I was there for that day. And I looked in the graves, and the first one we found was this one. You see, Yechiel Castelli, the ancestor of Leo Castelli that he had asked me to find and discover. So this is uh, a little bit of the story that uh, I managed to put together for, um, for, for him. 
um, rediscovering um, the ancestors of his family that he himself had decided never to look for. This is his father who became banker in Trieste and even during Mussolini, he became a fascist banker. This is something that Castelli never told anybody, but he told me somewhat that in an implicit way. One day he gave me a book, uh, and I remembered very vividly, by I still have it at home, by Alexander Stille, who teaches um, journalism at Columbia University. He's an Italian journalist. And the book was called Benevolence and Betrayal, Five Jewish Families Under Fascism. Leo loved this book, and later on I understood why, because it was telling the story of his father, who, because he was an opportunist, decided to become a fascist banker and actually died in the worst possible way. He was, his wife was drowned in the Danube during the siege of Budapest in 1944, and he, this man so elegant, always dressed in the best clothes, who had commissioned a mausoleum for himself three meters high in the village where he was born, has no, has no grave. He's put in a common grave. So this is the dramatic story of the family of Castelli. You know, he was always giving a cheerful, champagne, you know, wonderful um, story. But behind this ridiculous, in a way, myth, there is a much more complex, a much more dramatic, and a much, much more interesting story the one of, the real one of his family. Therefore, as I told you, you know, art is political. Everything is political. Here is his grandmother, Hungarian. That's uh, Trieste, where he lived. That's Hungary, where his father was born. That's him, Leo, at the age of 11, living Vienna with his mother, brother, and sister. And uh, next to him, two streets further away from him, somebody's dying that day. It's Egon Schiele. And I remember very vividly that the last show I went to see with Leo at MoMA was the erotic drawings of Egon Schiele. Leo loved them. And, you know, so he was really at every single spot of art history. His sister Sylvia, his brother, um, Giorgio, who's still alive at 99 in San Francisco. And this is his cousin, Pierre Ocan, who was the nephew of Gustav Mahler as well. And he's his sister, you know, living the good life of the good kids of the Jewish bourgeoisie in, in, uh, in Trieste, you know, lots of money, going with cars and having parties and having fun. And when Mussolini is getting to Trieste, il Duce, Leo is 20 years old then, and skiing like all the good kids around Trieste. And when he leaves, Trieste in 32 to do his, his tirocino, his, his internship. His father sends him to Bucharest. That's where he meets this man, Mihai Shapira, the richest man of Romania. Uh, he's uh, the financial advisor of King uh, Carol II here visiting Mihai Shapira's factory. Mihai Shapira is um, building trains and railroads. And Castelli will marry his daughter, Ileana, aged 17, and live with her for 25 years from the money of his father-in-law until this gallery in Paris that you saw. This is the, the Shapira family, you know, elegant in, uh, in the four brothers and the eight brothers and sisters. They were so elegant and so rich that uh, their parties could uh, compare with the parties of the Queen of England. Behind each guest, there was a 
um, a waiter in white gloves, and each guest had a golden present from Cartier. Men had uh, cigarette uh, boxes, and women had powder things. So that was that was the life that Castelli led before. But what, ha what the, the the trajectory of Mihai Shapira is completely different from that of Leo's father, because in 1935, in Bucharest, the next door neighbor of Shapira is the ambassador of, to Germany, and tells him, "You, the Jews, you should leave as fast as possible." So Shapira takes the most most of the things he has. I mean, not much. And he goes to a country where he knows he, nobody would disturb him. It's France. 35, he goes to France, and 41, he has to leave France. So this is the tragic story of, uh, and, but he's the one who gets them into Europe in 41. Uh, today, so this is the horrible, I mean, this is the real true story of Leo Castelli and, and, uh, and of his family and of his past and of his trajectory. Today, Leo Castelli, has become an icon in the United States. This is a Leo Castelli mug that is in the sitting room of most of his collectors. It's made by Maya Weissman. And the handle, as you can recognize, is a Frank Stella, Liechtenstein, uh, Warhol, whatever, you know. Uh, there's also a piece of art uh, done from uh, a plaque in a restaurant he used to go to, reserved for Leo Castelli, and um, done by an artist called Devon Dikeu. And here is the Castelli horse. Leo is holding the name of the horse. This is Peter Brandt, the collector who owns this horse that he called Leo Castelli. This is the jockey, and it was the Kentucky Derby where the Leo Castelli won the first prize. Well, all in all, I try to show you that art is in context, that Leo Castelli was a bridger. He transformed the ecology of the art world both in the US where he uh, identified the artists, he supported them, he promoted them, and around the world. Leo conceived his gallery as a mission, and his mission was a, an educational one, and I think that all in all, Leo Castelli behaved as those agents that I described here in early in early um, Europe. Let me describe it, it to you, read it to you. It's a conference about the agents in early modern Europe. Those agents were enterprising predecessors of, of um, uh, they were early, early enterprising uh, businessmen. They were highly mobile. We're talking about the 50s, the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century. They were highly mobile, well-traveled, with an immigrant background and a crucial knowledge of languages, local trade customs, networks, and roots. So um, Leo Castelli, for me, uh, if I may say in one sentence, Leo Castelli in the New York of the 60s and the 70s behaved as an agent of Renaissance Italy lost in New York of the 60s. So that's my story. Thank you very much. Uh, two, uh, two quite, I think, quite simple questions. Uh, one, you showed us the pantheon of all the artists that he discovered. Some of them. Uh, were there any that we he brought to the gallery that we do not know about anymore that have disappeared? 
Or did he just have such an eye that he got them all? Yeah, this is, this is a very good question. Yes, there are a lot of them, which uh, you don't... I don't know if you know somebody who passed away recently called Das Daphnis... Uh, Dasos Daphnis? Dasos Daphnos? No. So, you know, he's one of the artists he had. You know Marisol? Mm -hmm. She's good. She's well-known. I mean, there, there are a lot of artists. Like, he showed French artists that you won't remember. He showed uh, Gérard Garoust. I don't know if you know Gérard Garros, you know. So I just showed, I mean, the most memorable of them. But the other day in Montreal, somebody asked me, did, why didn't he show Tom Wesselman? Why didn't he show, you know. So there are people he decided not to show, he decided not to like, he decided not to integrate, you know. And Castelli's taste is, uh, it's difficult to give his taste, you know, um, a description. First of all, he collected great, individuals, you know. Johns and Rauschenberg are post-Dada. You know, the, base, the basic thing is people criticized Castelli because they said he buried, he destroyed abstract expressionists, which is true. He didn't show them and he promoted the post-expression, the post-abstract expressionists. As you well know, Rauschenberg could not stand the group of abstract expressionists and he had to erase the Kooning drawing to exist, you know, symbolically. So uh, then after these great individualities, you can also talk about Frank Stella, you know, then you have the pop artists, then you have the minimal artists, you know. So, but it, it's because it's Leo who, who invented, you know, them um, in, in a kind of uh, theoretical way that they would be gathered. For example, he did not show um, uh, color field painters, you know. Those were showed by André Emery. So, you know, so he decided to select the ones he selected. And maybe, maybe sometimes he was not the best. He didn't have the best eye. A lot of people said the best eye was his wife, Ileana Zonabend. And uh, Leo was um, supposed to, for example, who brought to the gallery Roy Lichtenstein? It's not him. It's Ivan Karp, his director. Uh, why did Leo... First, he missed Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol wanted to come to the gallery, but Leo said, no, I'm not taking you because you'll be in rivalry with Liechtenstein. In the end, he took him. You know, So I don't think that it is because of the choice, the precise choice that he marks his time. And that's why, you know, aesthetically, it's not um, something that, it's not my approach. My approach is more political and social. What he did was transform the social status of the American artist. And maybe he did it, and sometimes uh, somebody who wrote a very good profile of Leo in The New Yorker is Calvin Trilling, uh, Cal Calvin Tompkins, mm -hmm. Calvin Tompkins. And he wrote, he said, not a good eye, but a good ear. You know, so he was all about rumors and networking, more than about the eye. So that's why I try to. Could you write a, com a companion volume about uh, Ileana Sonnabend? Ah, yeah, I have all the documents to the book. I'm still waiting for the support. So that's all. <laughs> sure, sure. I met Sartre when I was 20 years old. I was doing my uh, MA in, in uh, the University of Nanterre, who was uh, the, the University of the Revolution of the Students in 1968. I met, and I was... Um, 
doing an MA on his friend called Paul Nizan, and a friend of mine had told me that she had met Sartre for a few minutes, and she said, you can meet him. So I called his um, secretary and asked for an interview. I was completely panicked to meet with this big guy because he had um, already refused the Nobel Prize. So not only a Nobel Prize is intimidating, but somebody who refuses the Nobel Prize is even more intimidating than somebody who has the Nobel Prize. So I went there, uh, very intimidated, and uh, was asking him my questions about his friend and so on. So he would answer, but surprisingly enough, he would not answer straight answers talking very fast or very convinced. He was hesitating, uh, posing, and I would be forced to suggest him some words to finish his sentences. So I tried to, and in a way, this was an elaboration of his discourse among the two of us. You know, he let, he let me help him with his words. And it was very strange because it's not what I had expected. I had expected the, the truth to come from the top. You know, as we do in France, you know, everything comes from the top, the prince, the king, the president, you know. But it was an elaboration which was much more democratic. You know, he was not the, the, the god god. He was, he was next to me. He was a peer. And uh, at the end, he would, he would ask me, but who are you? Where do you come from? Uh, I'd like to read more about you, and, which I never did. I never called him back. And then we left and we went, you know, it lasted a long time. And we went, he told me that I could accompany him to the restaurant. He was having lunch with Simone de Beauvoir. So I went with him. And I had a feeling, walking with this man who was very short, he was as short as Leo Castelli. They were a mètre cinquante-deux, both of them. I should ask my shrink about it, what the whole reason is. Anyway, and actually, we walked to the café... La Coupole, and I had a strange feeling when I left this man, I had a feeling that I had been empowered. It's very impossible to say this word in French, even to conceive it in French, but the feeling of being powerful, being, um, you know, legitimated, I don't know, it was very strange. And in fact, through Sartre, I discovered a lot of things. I discovered what the real... Um, story of the Jews in Algeria, where I was born, is about, you know, and, you know, I noticed afterwards that Sartre was somebody who empowered the intellectuals or the emerging powers or the, um, or the marginal people in a society. And as you can imagine, I think there's a big similarity with what Leo Castelli did with American artists, right? empowering the artist in the United States, where they had no status before him. You see what I mean? So I think that my work is about, you know, a global intellectual, a global gallerist, who, as a mission, try to empower the other one, the one who is not in their, you know, um, hegemonic position as they are. Mm -hmm. Is it, did I answer your question? Hi. Um, who were the antagonists? in the Castelli stories? Were there blockages? Were there times when he thought uh, it wouldn't turn out the way he imagined? Extremely good question. You get A plus. <laughs> now, I love this question. Yes, yes. A lot, a lot of, yeah, it's a, a lot of antagonists. Yes. First of all, I mentioned the fact that he didn't want to take in um, Andy Warhol first. 
But um, there is um, a time when Leo, you know, Leo starts at the age of 50. The big time for him is the 60s and the 70s. Then he's becoming an older man. And even his wife, Ileana Zonaben, who's on the third floor and he's on the second floor in Soho, basically is right at the beginning much more daring than he is, or much more cutting edge. You know, in Soho, she, at the opening of Soho, on the 24th of September 1971, she's the one who steals the show. Why? Because she shows Gilbert and George on a table, all painted in gold, you know, singing with their cane and going down and so on. So she, and then she has Vito Acconci masturbating another table. Then she has, you know, this is Ileana. Then she has Jeff Koons with Cicciolina, Ileana. Leo is much more classical. So when he gets older, some people try to take advantage of him. And uh, first of all, he also has a health problem. He has a pacemaker. And one day, people see him at the opening of Sai Twombly at, at the Whitney, dead, you know, on the floor. And everybody talks about this image like, you know, a, a moment where they think the art world is destroyed, you know. But Leo had just a problem with his pacemaker comes back to life. And, but the, the, the attacks he's going to have and the, uh, come from different people. The first one who's attacking him is somebody called Arnie Glimscher from the Pace Gallery. Arnie Glimscher told me, Leo never helped me. Leo, Leo never helped me because he felt that I was too strong for him. I was a rival. In 1980-something, 80, 80, I think, um, there's a sale of the Tremaine collection. It's a wonderful collection, the, uh, the Tremaine collection. They had Maudrian Victory Boogie Woogie, as well as Three Flags by Jasper Johns. You know, they had an incredible collection. And uh, Arnie Glimpshire sells these Three Flags to the Whitney Museum for a million dollars. It's the first time that such a price uh, is reached by a Jasper Jones painting. But he does it in the back of Leo. So it's basically a resale, but it's also his um, key artist. I mean, nobody will have with Leo Castelli the relationship that has Jasper Jones, nobody. And that, the sale becomes a big deal, you know, all, you know, news. In, that this sale is done in, in Leo's back is a big, big, um, uh, shock to him, it shows that he's not there anymore, you know, he's not. An another, another one is a collector, early collector called Joe Hellman, who is a very big real estate developer early on, in, in, you know, before he turns 30. And he decides to come and to buy and even to support Leo's Gary by giving him $500 a month. So he's a supporter backer of the gallery, if you want. And he's so in awe with Leo that he's going to become gallerist just to become Leo. Because he feels that selling, you know, this magic is much more important for him than, you know, even being a collector. So he opens a gallery in St. Louis with Ronnie Greenberg. And this is, you know, creating generations of gallerists who become gallerists of collectors who become Garis just to become Castellis. 
So he opens a gallery in St. Louis, and one day he goes to Europe. He has never seen Europe. He said, I'm, I was a Disney World boy, he told me. So he goes to Europe, he goes to Italy, and he decides to, to live in Italy. But later on, in the early 80s, as long as he was before representing Castelli's artists outside of New York, you know, as resellers, he decides to open a gallery in New York with another satellite gallery of Leo, Irving Bloom, and to settle a gallery, Bloom Hellman, in New York, without telling Leo in advance, and selling his own artists on his territory. You know, which is something pretty cruel or wrong. And that's going to be a terrible fight. And that's one of the elements which, you know, so these, there are a lot of, um, you know, little fights like that. And because of that um, rivalry, and, you know, Bloom says, uh, Irving Bloom told me many times, Leo could not make a deal. Leo didn't know how to close a deal. Leo was not a good, a good, uh, a good seller. You know? So I said, but what did he do? You know, what did he do which was better? You know? So it's very interesting because you have all these different approaches of, of, the, of the work of a gallerist. And Castelli was unique in his way. So uh, there, was, there were all these rivalries. And in fact, what Joe Hellman told me in the end, he said, Leo never tried to kill his enemies, he tried to co-opt them, you see? So it was big power games in New York around him. I don't know if I, if I understood your question and if I answered it properly. Did I? I'm just wondering about, um, not just on a professional level amongst dealers in New York, but on a personal level, both within his family and maybe with the artists who he showed in the gallery, was Again, were there blockages, were there uh, antagonisms, were there, I mean, your images were remarkable, but it was like one string of celebrations after another. And yet, certainly the story you fleshed out about the early family life in Europe suggests there must have been some kind of tension somewhere underneath the surface of all that. How do you know? How do you know? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you ask his personal life with, with his wives and children. That's what you're asking about? Um, his friends? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Leo, had, um, Leo had allies. He had few friends. Uh, he's, uh, he was a terrible family man. He was, as I told you, a horrible husband. Uh, you know, uh, Ileana was depressed all the time she was married with him. And his second wife became an alcoholic and died of cancer. Uh, uh, his children said they never saw him. And his grandchildren said he was abstract. But he was a father for everybody else. So this, you know. As for his wives, you know, yes, there were total tensions. And uh, with Ileana, she said uh, that he became the best possible um, team partner, working partner, when they were divorced. And so they, were, they would, you know, they would, uh, they would organize their, their, their sales throughout Europe and the, you know, the Rauschenberg uh, Venice Biennials throughout Europe. So um, the closest friends of Leo were, first of all, Alan Solomon, 
Uh, it's the time where Leo was just divorced from Ileana. Alan Solomon was also just divorced. So they were talking about art and about girls, which helps. He had left, Alan Solomon had left Cornell and came to New York. And he became, you know, um, as I told you, the director of the Jewish Museum. For four years, Jewish Museum would show non-Jewish artists and contemporary art. And then he was the commissioner of the Venice Biennial. And, uh, and, you know, and he had allies. You know, one of his satellite gallery, I think maybe the one who looks like Leo the most, is John Enzo Speroni. I don't know if you know the Westwater Speroni Gallery in New York. He's very, very much like Leo and very close to Leo. Um, uh, apart from that, many rivalries, one of them, which is extremely interesting, is with somebody called Henry Geltzaler, a very important figure in the art world in New York, uh, also Jewish, also uh, uh, coming from Yale and, and, and Harvard. And uh, Henry did this magnificent show, 40 Years of American Art, um, 1946, 1960, 1949, 1969, at the Metropolitan Museum. But Leo didn't like the show. Why? because Henry did a different narrative by integrating in his catalog a text by Clement Greenberg, who had excluded Rauschenberg. So Leo was furious that Geltzaler did a different narrative of America not than his narrative, you know, that other artists were included, you know. But I think all that were issues of power. Somebody was asking once, what did Leo like the most? Was he a man of money? Was he no, Leo liked power. I had the privilege of showing a, a Canadian who invaded New York, a photographer, who brought uh, invited him to show at Walter Muse Gallery, um, invited him to show uh, portraits of Henry Gelzeller and Castelli. It was probably the most beautiful portrait of Castelli. Had a lawyer knock on my window. What was the relationship between Henry Gelzeller and, uh, because this photographer first met Henry Gelzeller, Henry introduced them, uh, Warhol introduced them to Henry Geldzeller, and Geldzeller was the public, uh, cultural minister in New York for yes, a time? He was. he was cultural commissioner of the city of New York. So what was the relationship? Did they have a, 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 a strong relationship? Between Castelli and Geldzeller? Yes, I just mentioned it before, but when I arrived in New York, uh, it's very interesting because I recently discovered by doing the book that Leo didn't like very much, or didn't like at all the show of Henry at the Metropolitan. But when I myself arrived in New York, it was a time where Henry was cultural commissioner of the city, and Leo told me one day we were going to the opening of uh, Liechtenstein at the National Gallery. He said, Annie, you have to meet this man, he's extremely important. He played an important role, and it was Henry Gelsaller. At, you know, at the time he was at the, so, you know, and that also, so he, he, he was praising him highly, you know? And that goes with this, um, with this description of Castelli never tried to kill his enemies. He rather co-opted them, you know? I noticed recently that Castelli had a big opposition, antagonism with Geltzaler in the 70s. But to me, in the early 90s, he would praise Geltzaler. So, you know, this is a very interesting... Uh, I mean, the attitude of an Austro-Hungarian diplomat, you know, at the Duke of Savoy. So, uh, so it's so interesting because, you know, all in all, Castelli wanted to erase the, face, the, the fact that he was Jewish. He would not volunteer, as I told you, to, tell, to talk about it. And he would not deny it. 
But in fact, all his talent is a talent that his ancestors had to produce because they were forced to work with money between the field of money and between the symbolic field. So basically, maybe his genius lays in the fact that he had those talents because he comes from these ancestors. You see what I mean? So maybe we can end with that? Yes, I think at that point it's perfect. Thank you so much, Annie. That was absolutely superb. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.